Yesterday we had a discussion about infinite consciousness and infinite space, the fifth and sixth meditative absorption, space first and consciousness. And now comes the seventh one. And the seventh one <coughs> is called the sphere, sphere of nothingness. I'll read you first what the Buddha said about it, which is very little, and then I'll explain something about it. Again, by passing entirely beyond the sphere of infinite consciousness, seeing that there is no thing, he reaches and remains in the sphere of nothingness <coughs> and, be <coughs> and becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle perception of the sphere of nothingness. It's spelled no-thingness, which is um, far more descriptive than the word nothing. So no-thing, no-thingness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. And this is that training, said the Lord. Since it's called the sphere of nothingness, and this is only the translator's idea, which is a very good one, to put a hyphen in the middle, most people um, either dismiss it, it's nothing, or, <laughs> or if they don't dismiss it, they misunderstand it, of course. Because nothing doesn't seem to be anything at all that we can put our attention on. But putting the hyphen in the middle and saying no thingness is correct and more descriptive. What the mind experiences at that time can be of two kinds. One thing is quite certain that one experiences, namely that neither in the infinity of space nor in the infinity of consciousness is there anything that one can hang on to. There's nothing solid to be found, not a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. And hearing it and reading it is all very interesting, but experiencing it means biting into the mango. Nobody can tell one otherwise. And not only that, One's reactions to the world and the people in it changes. It has to change. Because it's impossible not to have that inner realization that although everybody looks so solid, it's all an optical illusion. Everything is in constant flux. And what everybody is running after are sense contacts. And what everybody is beset with are the five hindrances. So there's dukkha everywhere. And seeing that there's not a single solid building block in the whole of the universe, neither in the infinity of space nor in the infinity of consciousness, imbues the mind, if it does it more than once, but regularly, 
with that realization. It's not to be confused with Nibbana, but it's certainly a taste of it, a taste of the other dimension. And this is what we're after. We're after another dimension in our consciousness. And how we go about it is strictly through concentration, but we also need to know where we're going. And that's why the Buddha is explaining it, even though it's very short, uh, the explanation is very short. So one sees that in both of them, if there's no thing, and that one becomes aware of no thingness. That can have two results as the meditation object. One can be that there's a constant, very subtle movement as if one is looking at the well, that's too gross, a fountain, but I can't think of anything more subtle. Uh, a fountain where the spray is constantly moving, but it's finer than that, but at least it's a simile. The, uh, the spray of a fountain, which is never still. That's one way of experiencing that. That's not a single thing that one can hang on to or latch on to. There's nothing that doesn't move. And the other way one can become aware of that, and either way is fine, is that there is a great expanse which sort of combines space and consciousness because it's a spaciousness, the infinity of spaciousness, and it's also one is conscious of it. And within that great expanse, there's nothing to be found. So it's a sphere of no thingness, which of course brings with it a very definite insight, just as all the others. Number five, six, and seven are quite often called the Vipassana Janas, which means nothing other than insight Janas. Now, I have already mentioned that you gain insight out of every one of them. And I've given the um, major insights that are to be gained, that that what we're looking for in the world is already within us, that our sense contacts can never provide us with the joy that we can actually have in the second jhana, that contentment and peacefulness is only possible if there's wishlessness, and... I think at this point I would like to mention once more, if you're wishing to have first, second, third or fourth jhana, it's not going to happen. Drop the wish. Relax into it. The mind has no other way to go once it stops thinking. Third jhana, wishlessness. Everything else is dukkha. Contentment is only possible with wishlessness and forced jhana. When the me assertion has been minimized, which it is in that one, that's when stillness arises. 
And from that stillness arises then that even-mindedness, that mind that stays even under any circumstance, dying, pain, dislike, ill-fame, whatever it may be. Now, with the fifth swan and the sixth swan, we find as a major insight that that person whom we think we are is not available. Space is available, consciousness is available, but this person isn't available. Although there is an observer, because otherwise we wouldn't know about it, there's no person to be found. That observer has expanded to the infinity of space and to the infinity of consciousness. Otherwise, the observer could not know those two. If he is this little one that's sitting here right now, that little observer that's trying to listen and trying to understand, that one cannot experience infinity. So the observer has become infinite and therefore not personal. We don't look very infinite, do we? And we don't uh, feel very infinite either. So at that time, there's a feeling of infinity and the observer is also infinite. So it's a very profound insight that although there is space, which is materiality, rupa, and although there is consciousness, which is mind, there's nobody that can claim to have either. It just is. This kind of understanding paves the way to freedom, to letting go completely. It's a paving of the way. Now here in the seventh one, again, we realize and experience that not only is there no person, there is no thing. Not a single thing that we could say is solid. Now, having experienced that, we know it. And we know it eventually. It becomes a gut feeling. And when it becomes a gut feeling, we can act upon it. Until then, we may enjoy the jhanas, and there's no reason not to. But the gut feeling of the inside takes time to arise. So one has to repeat them every day in one's meditation. And there should be no discernible reason that if one can do them, why one should not repeat them. Although that too has happened. And I can't say why. So, the seventh is a very profound uh, realization about the whole of the universe, which is more than just what concerns this person, but it's identical with it. We too don't have a single solid building block, and neither has the whole of the universe. So sometimes, 
for those of you who might have had some contact with the Tibetan teaching, sometimes it is said that in the Theravada teaching, we only concern ourselves with anatta, which is the non-self, and in the Tibetan, it's sunyata, which is the non-existence of any core, wherever. Well, if you hear that or read that, you can be aware of the fact that they're both identical because we experience, of course, both. The word anatta does mean non-self, but it refers to everything that exists. It does have the connotation as if it refers only to a person because self and person seem to be identical, but it doesn't. And in the sevens, we have that experience. A curious thing is happening in this sutta. The Buddha has left out the eights. I think it's either an omission in the recitation, because these suttas were recited for at least 250 years until they were written down, or it's on purpose. Either way. If it's on purpose, one can only imagine that he thinks he's told Potapada enough about the pathway and is now going to answer his question. Namely, the higher extinction of consciousness. How does it come about? That was his original question. And he had all sorts of ideas about it, which he had heard from other people. And none of them, of course, made much sense. And so now, stopping at the seventh, and so I will also stop at the seventh, he is answering partly that question. He's saying, Potapada, from the moment on, when one has gained this controlled perception, I'd like to say to that that the jhanas are considered controlled perception. It's the first time when the mind gains control. Most people think they are in control of their lives which is actually a bad joke. Because if one were in control of one's life, one certainly would never, ever get unhappy. That would be the epitome of foolishness. So control means that one can actually think what one wants to think and let go of all the things which are not conducive to one's own happiness and to the goal of the practice. That's control. So the first time any control happens is when the mind is one-pointed enough to go into the jhanas. Obviously, the uh, higher jhanas, more control. First jhana, not so much control, but at least there's something. Second, not so much Third, yes, that's when really control of perception starts. So that's what the Buddha is saying. He says, when one has gained this controlled perception, one proceeds from stage to stage till one reaches the limit of perception. Now, the limit of perception, and 
luckily, the Pali word is in the book, so that one actually does know what Potapada is talking about, because it's a word which is a very everyday kind of word, the word perception, and yet it here concerns something which is everything but an everyday kind of experience. He's asking about Abhisanya Niroda. Now, Abhi is higher. Sanya is perception, and Niroda is the cessation. So he's asking about the actually the ninth jhana, which is sometimes called the ninth jhana. Very often it's just called Niroda or the cessation. And so the Buddha answers that now. And it is also said in the scriptures that only non-returner and arahant are able to enter into that ninth jhana, into niroda, the cessation. And cessation means cessation of perception and feeling. And it is quite um, elaborately described, actually, in some of the scriptures and some of the commentaries, that such a person appears to be like dead. But the uh, because the uh, breath is also so fine that one can't actually uh, notice it if one is an observer. But in actuality, the uh, life force has not left the body. There is, although the body turns quite cool and the heart beat becomes extremely slow, there's still some warmth to the body. And it is said that one can sit in that up to seven days. That's not common for meditators to do that. It's more common if um, there is some sort of uh, display of mastery, and the Buddha was very much against that the display of mastery. He was, even if one had it, he was utterly against that, that one should uh, produce oneself. So, Niroda, cessation, is a state where there is, while it is happening, no observer. When one comes out of it, there is the definite possibility and happens for the people who do it and have done it properly that one reverts and reverts or directs the mind towards the fruit of the non-returner or the arahant. Now I'll talk about that at another time, the fruit, because it's another technical term. But this Niroda I had to explain, even though it's a bit... Um, far-fetched at this moment, isn't it? Uh, because this is what the question is all about. So he says, he proceeds from stage to stage till he reaches the limit of perception. The limit of perception will be actually in the eighth jhana, which he is not mentioning, so we're talking about the seventh jhana as a limit. When he has reached the limit of perception, it occurs to him, mental activity is worse for me Lack of mental activity is better. Now, what this means is, and this is a very important insight, thinking is dukkha. And I'd like you to check that out. Any meditator must realize that. 
any wish, any wanting, anything that goes on in the mind is dukkha. And why is it that? Because it's moving. And all movement is irritation. And irritation is dukkha. It's never totally fulfilling. If we think about the past, we are bringing it into the present. Now, if our past was not satisfactory, if we think the past was something that it should have been different, and we're bringing that into the present, what are we doing? We're making ourselves a lot of dukkha. What for? Let the past rest. It's done with. It's gone. We can drop it. We don't have to bring it back into the present and have the same dukkha again we had in the past. What for? We are alive now. We are on the path now. Only the thoughts that concern that would be of benefit. If we bring the future into the mind, we're bringing the future into the present and we're hoping and praying for something we want. Equal dukkha. What we want makes dukkha. What we don't want makes dukkha. What for? I have sometimes said to people who do this, and practically everybody does it at one stage or another, but those who do it with a vengeance, that they should tell themselves that they're a fool to keep on doing that. Now, if one has that kind of honesty towards oneself, it's very helpful to tell oneself, this is, I'm a fool. I'm going to stop that. The past and the future. To bring them into the present. What for? The only thing that we can learn from that is that there is no past and no future. Everything is now. This moment. But to make oneself unhappy is totally unnecessary. So, Mental activity is worse. Lack of mental activity is better. That doesn't mean that one becomes a vegetable. Not at all. The Buddha was one of the most, um, uh, that had the sharpest mind and was a genius in explaining what goes on in a human being. But if there is no need to think, and obviously, when we want to meditate, there's no need to think. Not even, I would like to meditate, even that's not necessary. There's no need to think, we don't have to. And even outside of meditation, there are many times that there's no need to think. So instead of thinking, we just use awareness of the moment. And in the moment, there's nothing other than either the physical action of the breathing or the movement or of seeing or hearing and no necessity to respond to that with the mind explanation. So the non-thinking is something we can actually learn through the jhanas, practice in everyday life, and thereby give the mind far more strength and energy by not overworking it like we usually do. 
So then he says, if aware to think and imagine, these perceptions that I have attained would cease, and coarser perceptions would arise in me. Suppose I were not to think or imagine. So having reached at least the seventh jhana, one has already that understanding that these are very subtle perceptions that one has, and even more subtle, of course, in the ninth one, which I have already explained. And if one starts thinking and imagining things and (coughs) reacting, and not only that, but projecting, projecting is one of the greatest hazards that humanity is beset with. All the things we carry within, we don't want to know about it. We project it to someone else. And then we don't like that person. Because what we have in ourselves, we don't really like it, so we don't want to know it. Projection, reaction, all these things that happen within us are coarse compared to the jhanas. And so, the person who has reached the, let's say, the seventh jhana, knows that, that the ordinary way of thinking is a detriment. Naturally, when we are making a living, when we have to respond to people's discussions, we have to go to that level. There's no other way. And the Buddha did too. He's... um, talking to Padapada on a very ordinary mental level because he's answering his questions. He's explaining things to him. But we don't always have that need. So we can realize that there are coarse perceptions and that there are subtle perceptions. And the coarseness of our perception makes us coarser. And the subtlety of our perceptions brings a fineness to our mind and to our whole being. So, we can say quite truly, we are what we think. And now, we should, from this, take a cue. Watch what we're thinking. Be careful. Very careful. The more careful one is about one's thought processes, the easier it is to go into the jhanas and to go to the higher jhanas. Higher jhanas which really bring um, quite a different reaction to oneself. Whereas the first ones also bring that, but the higher ones at even more so. So the person neither thinks nor imagines. And then, just these perceptions arise but other coarser perceptions do not arise. So, it's not thinking, it's not imagining anything. There are other words used also for imagination, namely manipulating and um, planning, fancying, perfecting. All these are alternate translation possibilities. Since nobody has spoken the language for two and a half thousand years, or 2,300 years, one should say, um, the translation is not that easy, not that easy to find the right word. 
um, it's a dead language, and uh, so it's difficult. So without thinking, without imagining, without planning, without reflecting, um, as I said, without reacting, without projecting, these coarser perceptions, the coarse perceptions of the world, of our duality, of that what we like and what we don't like, or what other people are or are not, all that does not arise because there's none of this thinking and imagining. And none of that thinking and imagining, then only these very subtle perceptions come about. And then he says, and he t- attains cessation. And that, Puddha is the way in which the cessation of perception is brought about by successive steps. And cessation is the word for Niroda that I've already explained. I don't know why he's not describing the eighth jhana. And I will give you the name for the eighth jhana. It's neither perception nor non-perception. So it's not cessation of perception. It's neither this nor that. It's neither perceiving nor is it non-perceiving. So it's actually a state of complete rest for the mind where the labeling, the observing, has almost completely stopped. To all uh, purposes, it has completely stopped. One doesn't realize it's there, but it is there. But it is there at such a fine level that it's neither non-perception. So the cessation of perception is definitely the ninth jhana, and it is that which is not at the moment available. Seven would be fine. Just get to the seventh jhana and it would be great. So it doesn't have to be the ninth. But Puttapada wants to know, because it was something that is very... Um, was very prized in India and still is um, sort of like a, practically like a show see what I can do and obviously the people who did could not have been fully enlightened because at the stage of the non-returner there is just that very subtle perception of the me still there like the aroma that clings to a flower. Now he says to Potapada, and what do you think, Potapada? Have you heard of this before? No, Lord. So he's never heard all this explanation. Probably he means all the jhanas and also how these perceptions uh, can cease. As I understand it, the Lord has said, now he's going to repeat what he has understood. He has said, Potapada, from the moment when one has gained this controlled perception, one proceeds from stage to stage until one reaches the limit of perception and then attains cessation. And that is the way in which the cessation of perception is brought about by successive steps. That's right, Potapada. So Potapada was very good. He listened and he understood. And just to repeat, the controlled perception starts 
with the first jhana, but of course it it becomes far stronger as the jhanas become more subtle. Because to perceive that which is subtle is more difficult than to perceive that which is coarse. None of us have any difficulty hearing words, but that's a coarse perception. But we may have a little difficulty getting to the seventh jhana. Well, that's a very subtle perception. So, he says, when the controlled perception starts, one proceeds from stage to stage, from jhana to jhana, until one reaches the limit of perception. Now, the limit, I would say, the limit of one's perception could be construed to be in the eighth jhana, and then comes the cessation of perception. So, Puttapada's got it right. So, one has um, to bring it about by successive steps. Now, Puttapada has a new question. He's got his answer, but now he's got a new question. Lord, do you teach that the summit of perception is just one, or that it is many? I teach it as both, one and many. But, Lord, how is it one and how is it many? According as one attains successively to the cessation of each perception, so I teach the summit of that perception. And thus, I teach both one summit and also many. So what the Buddha is saying here, as we let go of the perception of the first jhana, that's the cessation of that one. And that is also the summit of that one. So then, as we go to the second jhana, and we drop that after some time, well, then the uh, cessation of the perception of the second jhana has taken place, and it was also the summit of that perception. It was all that was there at that time. So then we proceed. So as one goes from stage to stage, there is the cessation of perception of each one, and, of course, of all of them. It's more or less a way of an Indian way of um, being very uh, exact in one's description. We will find more of that uh, a little later. It's an Indian way of describing things in a, which is not common with us of uh, saying that there's one and there's many and there's neither this and nor that and we will find uh, other uh, instances where that is being said. Now, if we use the word consciousness, it might make it even easier to recognize what's going on here. And uh, obviously, I'd like you to recognize, just like Potapada did. Um, although, of course, it's more difficult for me because he was talking to the Buddha himself. So, if you think of consciousness, now I've already told you and you have experienced that in the first jhana there is a shift of consciousness. It's an elevated consciousness. It is not very subtle yet. It's the coarsest of those subtle perceptions. 
But when you say that, this is another consciousness. And when that consciousness ceases, that was the summit of that one that one has experienced. And then it ceases and one goes to the next one stage by stage. So each consciousness ceases in order to make room for the next one until we get to the seventh one. And as we get to the seventh one, and that one ceases, we come to the summit of that one, and that consciousness ceases, then, having left out the eighth one, we may assume that he was trying to tell Puddhapada one can get from the seventh to the ninth. Um, as one has that consciousness ceasing of the seventh, then it goes to that one, which is the outer limit of a human ability. And that outer limit is then a cessation. A cessation which actually is not path moment, but very much connected to it. And I will explain path and fruit at another time. So he teaches both. There's one summit, which is the last one, to go to the cessation of perception, and he also teaches many, which is stage by stage. Now he has another question, Puttapada. He says, Lord, does perception arise before knowledge, or knowledge arise before perception? Or do both arise simultaneously? And the Buddha says, perception arises first, Puttapada, then knowledge. And from the arising of perception comes the arising of knowledge, and one knows, thus conditioned, knowledge arises. If we look at perception as the third step in our mental makeup, sense consciousness, feeling, perception, mental formation, we know already that the perception has to arise first before we can know. In other words, that what we perceive, that is what we know. Also, if we, want to, if we think of it as consciousness, the consciousness, the experience, has to arise first before we can know it. So, to say the truth, Potapada's question is actually not very bright, but he wants to have exact information and he knows he can get it from the Buddha. Anything that we experience has to come first before we can understand the experience. And that holds true for everything we do. That our breath is impermanent. First we have to experience the breath. And then we know it's impermanent. And first we have to experience the arising and ceasing of every thought we have. And then we have the understanding of that impermanence on that level. Now, the same goes for the different consciousness levels of the different stages of the jhanas. They first have to be there before we know what has happened. Actually, in the commentary, it's quite differently explained. But uh, it's my prerogative to explain it the way I see it and understand it. 
actually the, it's explained that one has reviewing knowledge. But it comes to the same thing. We can only review what has already happened. We can't review something that's never happened. So if we have reviewing knowledge means that we review how many of our hindrances have abated or have become less and how many of them are still there. Um, reviewing knowledge means exactly the same thing. It means that whatever it is that is within us, that we experience, that we review. So it is actually the way to wisdom, to insight, the understood experience. And that's why I have given you the um, understanding of the insights that arise from the jhanas. Because the jhanas are the experience and the insights, the understanding of it. So we have to have the perception, the experience, the consciousness, and then the understanding of that, the knowledge. It's called knowledge here, but it means the real understanding. It's very often translated like that. Jnana, seeing and knowing, but it means actually the realization of. When we just think of seeing and knowing, it doesn't go deep enough. It seems to be something that we do all the time. We're looking all the time and we know something all the time. But this is not meant by that, just knowing things. It means an understood experience. And I've already mentioned, and I'd like to mention again because I think it's an important aspect of the teaching, that we all have all of the experiences that make it possible to be enlightened. We just don't understand them. That's the only thing that's wrong. We have them constantly, day in and day out. And we all have the faculty and ability to eventually really see them properly. And we all have the seed of enlightenment within. If we didn't, the Buddha's teaching of 45 years would have been in vain. we need to acknowledge the great teacher and the great teaching and follow the guidelines. If we think we can figure it out ourselves, we'll have many lifetimes in which we will still have to suffer. But if we can acknowledge the great teacher and the great teaching, the Buddha and the Dhamma, and follow what he had to say, we might be getting out of suffering in this lifetime. Anything that is unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory for us is, is suffering. It's not just tragedy or sickness. So we know that there is cause and effect again. First there is the experience, and then there is the understanding. So we really need, need to heed that. Because it's not useful 
to be able to go to the first jhana or second or third or whichever one one reaches, enjoy it, be happy, and then go and have lunch. One has to review the experience and gain some understanding of it. The same holds true for any meditative experience, jhana or otherwise. Whatever there is happening within one's mind through the meditation, it needs to be reviewed. What was that? What did I actually experience? This is the only way that insight arises. People try very hard to gain insight through intellectual confirmation. It doesn't work. It is a beginning. At least one isn't arguing with the Buddha. That's also life. One is accepting what he said. That's fine. But it doesn't produce a necessary insight to change oneself. It's a beginning step. It's an intellectual connection that we're making. But after that has to come the reviewing, the understanding of one's own experience. Only that makes it possible to have insight which is profound and which has such impact that we will never be the same again. If you do want to be the same again, then of course don't do it. (laughs) But if one is uh, convinced that it's all right not to be the same again, then one needs to do that. Then the Buddha says to Potapada, in this way you can see how perception arises first and then knowledge, and that from the arising of perception comes the arising of knowledge. So he's answering those questions immediately. He's not uh, going around in any more of the training steps because he's given them to him already, the training steps. And um, obviously Potapada is very interested in what the Buddha has to say, but obviously has never done any of this because he's ever done it he wouldn't have all these questions about it. He's sort of a stranger to it. And afterwards that comes out quite clearly. Now he has another question. Lord, is perception a person's self or is perception one thing and self another? Now this is the uh, typical difficulty on the relative level that we think the observer is me because perception is the observer perceives and then tells so this observer must be me because who else could be observing what I'm thinking must be me observing what I'm thinking this is on the relative level where one can go round and round in circles and never get a um, find a way out of it Because one has to 
let go of those ideas. But for the Pada hasn't. He's uh, still totally immersed in the relative level of truth. And uh, so we can have um, a great deal of identification with him. And we also can have a great deal of compassion with him. Because he's just like us, isn't he? So, well, Puttapada, do you postulate a self? So now the Buddha is trying to get him out of this idea of his self, but he's not successful. We'll see in a minute. So Puttapada says, yes, I postulate a gross self, material, composed of the four elements, and feeding on solid food. So he's actually on that level that we... um, addressed yesterday already, that he thinks this is me, the body. And of course there are something other things happening inside this body, but, you know, like consciousness and all that sort of thing, but he's convinced this self is, that's me. He changes his mind, but he never gets to the end of it. But with such a gross self, Padapada, perception would be one thing and the self another. You can see it in this way. Given such a gross self, certain perceptions would arise in a person and others pass away. In this way you can see that perception must be one thing and the self another. So he says, now you have this body, this gross self, and you are thinking that that's you. But you're talking about perceptions. So perceptions come and go. So how could that be if this is you and you've got perceptions which come and go, how could you make the two be identical? That well, makes sense to put up. He says, yes, it's okay. He gives in on that one. That, that's fine. That's understandable. You know, I, mean, I think we can understand that too. That if, if we say the perception and the self are the same, well, surely that's not possible if that is a self, if this body is a self. So now he has a new idea, um, Potapada. Then I postulate a mind-made self, complete with all its parts, not defective in any sense organ. So then he says, okay, so, okay, I'm not the body. And we can often hear that, that one has actually accepted the fact that I am not the body. But it's also a dicey statement because it's more likely, it was, would be more of an insight if we were to say, well, that too, I am not the body, but the body isn't mine. Because we have this idea that we are owning this. And because we are owning it, we're doing all sorts of things with it, which are supposed to keep it happy, healthy, and bring about the good sense contacts. Because we are the owners of this. And being the owners, of course, we're postulating an owner called me. And while we think that this me owns the body, it's the same like owning the house and owning the car and owning the fridge. We don't think we're the car. We don't think we're the house. We don't think we're the fridge. 
but we own them all. So who's owning it? The mind made self, the one Potapada has now addressed. He says, okay, I'm not the body, all right, so I've got a mind made self. And that's complete with all its parts, not defective in any sense organ. And so he's, since he hasn't given up any ownership at all, he now lets go of the idea that me and the body are the same. Now he has me and the mind are the same. He's still saying all the things that people say nowadays. And then the Buddha says, but with such a mind-made self, perception would be one thing and the self another. Given such a self, certain perceptions would arise in a person and others pass away. In this way you can see that perception must be one thing and the self another. So, Potapada says, okay, I'll agree with you. I'll think of something else. So now he thinks of this. I'm assuming a formless self made up of perception. He's quite clever, actually. <laughs> so he's got, now he's got a formless self. He hasn't, it's got, hasn't got any body. That's no longer concerned with having a body because he's understood what the Buddha said. And he's also not concerned with the fact that the mind is owning the body. So he says, okay, so it's formless. And of course, formless has um, the connotation of the higher jhanas. And so the Buddha has actually talked about that. So then the Buddha says, but with such a formless self, perception would be one thing and self another. So he's constantly coming back to the same answer. He's saying, our perceptions arise and cease. He has already explained that they go from stage to stage, that we come to the summit of one perception, and then that one ceases, and then we get a new one, and then that one ceases. So, now he's saying, but if, if that, if you have a formless self, which is not the body, and which is not necessarily the mind that owns anything, but which is more likely um, what he's thinking about, is a self which doesn't have any uh, materiality. So we can think of it maybe as a... Um, sometimes people talk about uh, the, um, a, um, a body which is um, sort of... they become aware of it, that it's arriving out of this physical body, but it doesn't have the form of, of the physical body at all. Sometimes people are aware of that sort of thing. So he becomes, he says, formless self. But the Buddha says, yes, but perceptions, perceptions are not a formless self. Perceptions are perceptions. 
and they arise and cease. So how can you think that perceptions and a formless self could be the same? In other words, he's trying to tell him by logic that this isn't possible. If we have a formless self, a perception is something entirely different. So then he says, Potapada says, But Lord, is it possible for me to know whether perception is a person's self or whether perception is one thing and self another? So he's getting a bit uh, frustrated. And the Buddha says, Potapada, it is difficult for one of different views, a different faith, under different influences, with different pursuits and a different training, to know whether these are two different things or not. So what he's saying to Potapada is, you're not my student, so it'd be very difficult for you. You've learned different things, and you have a different faith, and you have totally different influences. So being influenced by the belief in a soul, by the belief in the, um, in happiness after death, being influenced by a certain way of practice, he says, it's very difficult, be very difficult, because one is also to say, on a different track. Now, our minds can change. We have that in the expression of our language. I changed my mind. And we've done that hundreds and thousands of times. So, obviously, we can do it. And we're constantly doing it. But we need to see the necessity for that. We need to be so aware of our own dukkha that, and that's always the first step, that we recognize that whatever we've done so far hasn't actually taken the dukkha away. And then we may change our mind and be influenced in a different way. In the end, um, Purapada does become a student of the Buddha, which usually happens in these, uh, these courses, um, but at this stage he isn't. So he's got all sorts of ideas which he has been imbued with from all sorts of teachers and uh, the Rig Vedas, which he undoubtedly knows. And uh, so there is no way, the Buddha says, that he can actually present that to him in such a way that he can accept it. So they're stopping that conversation. Potapara stops it, actually. The Buddha would have been willing to go on, no doubt, if he kept on asking. But he's stopping the conversation, and he starts asking him totally different questions. And we'll have those totally different questions tomorrow. This was the line of questioning where it's quite obvious that Potapada cannot get to the absolute truth about the self. The, um, the same as what we had yesterday, where there are all these different selves postulated, which we also have in our mind, the last one being the unity one, 
the one that unites with everything. Parapara doesn't even get to that. He only gets to mind made and formless. Body, mind, and then formless. Neither one nor the other. So he doesn't get to the unity one. Um, he gives up on that line of questioning, realizing that he actually hasn't got the necessary information so that he could understand that all of this, all of these ideas of the self are just that, ideas, our own ideas. And we're in the same boat. We've got our own ideas and we believe them with a vengeance. We believe that this must be so. Why do we believe it? Because we have the idea. It's my idea. So it must be true. Is that really good enough? Just because it's my idea, it's got to be true? And that goes for everything and anything. Just because I have an idea about something or someone, is that really true? Can it be true? On an absolute level, it cannot. On an absolute level, it can only be untrue. Because on an absolute level, as we have heard, there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. So what are we thinking about something or somebody? So on that level, it's totally untrue. But even on the relative level, just because it's my idea doesn't have any guarantee that that is so. On the contrary, one should really question it and see where this idea comes from. And if it's a negative one, one should question it even more. And one should question it to the point where one recognizes its source. And the source is always within oneself. Like our little jack-in-the-box. It's always within oneself. So any idea that we have is just a projection. Even this self-thing is a projection. We'd like it because it is a foundation for our greed and hate. But if we have found out that we are really not very well off with those two, then we might be able to go a step further than Potapada and see more clearly that with all that that's arising and ceasing, how can we ever imagine that there's somebody there within all that flux and movement? Who could possibly be sitting there? Is there somebody there that's pulling the strings like in a puppet theater? There are puppets there. They're lifeless. But there's somebody there that's pulling the strings so they're hopping about and dancing and nodding and everything else. So do we have somebody in there that's pulling the strings? We think we do. It's very helpful if we examine that again and again. Of course, we're also influenced by other thoughts, namely by the thoughts of everybody we know and by everything that we have ever experienced and then thought we knew what it meant. So this influence which he's talking about here says 
different influences is with us and uh, the different viewpoints. But we've got the right training. So with that, we may be able to see a glimpse of freedom. Not having a self anymore within is freedom. There is no other freedom. It's the only one. And it's the Buddhist genius that he was able to explain what he actually explained. 